Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome once again to the Failed Critic Podcast, Episode 5. I'm your host, Steve Norman. I'm joined, as I always am, by Jerry McCauley. Hello. And James Diamond. Good afternoon. And we've got a new addition to the podcast this week, Owen Hughes. Hello. Uh, Would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself, Owen, so listeners know who you are? Uh, yeah, sure. Okay, I'm from the Football 365 Forum as well. Um, I probably watch too many horror films, so a lot of my uh, nominations during the podcast will usually be probably B-movies or horror films that nobody else wants to watch. Uh, and I'm going to apologise in advance for my sort of mangled black country accents, which nobody wants to hear. Um, but that's what I'm bringing to the podcast, stuff nobody wants to hear. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, that's me. Both in style and content. That's, that's, yeah, that's, that's it. <laughs> um, yes, one, Owen joining us is one of a couple of changes this week, but we'll come on to that later. Uh, we'll start off with The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, where we review what films we've been watching this week. Move on to Triple Bill, where this week we've been picking our best three films from the 1970s, and move on to the new release review in the last part, which this week is The Dictator, starring Sasha Baron Cohen and Ben Kingsley. Uh, before we start reviewing the films we've been watching this week, James, would you like to update everyone on how the podcast has been doing? Yes, yeah, people, we've still got people all over the world listening, which is fantastic. So all I want now is more and more people to contact us, not only with your suggestions for future triple bills, so not only the films that are in the triple bill, but also it'd be quite nice to get some suggestions for people's triple bills that they would like to hear. Um, your thoughts on The Dictator, your thoughts on any reviews that we do as well. And to contact us, you just need to contact us at The Failed Critic on Twitter or use the hashtag, hashtag Failed Critic. You can contact us on our blog, which is thefailedcritic.wordpress.com or come and like our new Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash failed critic and also i've just got one more update to add here because a couple of weeks ago i said how excited i was about the release of iron sky the moon nazis film and it's come to light this week that the uk distributors revolver have decided to release the film for one day only theatrically uh, theatrically in the uk now the director and i'll apologize about the pronunciation of his name timo uh Vuronsola, i believe not happy, says they've been absolutely shafted. Uh, and so this is a bit of a controversy, to be honest. However, hopefully this podcast will be up just in time for my warning to tell you 
go and see Iron Sky this Wednesday. It's only on this Wednesday. It may not even be on anywhere near you. Drive, drive and go and see it. It's on Wednesday, the 23rd of May. Number of showings, but it will be your only chance to see it in the theatres. Yeah, I'd like to add as well, um, they are bringing the Blu-ray out like next Monday as well. So um, yeah. they're, not, they're not wasting any time with it. Yeah, it's, uh, and I think the reason they've done it, it, they've just decided to make as much money as they can out of this. And apparently they have misled the filmmakers as to as to how and why they were going to release the film. So that's disappointing. Uh, but if, yeah, if you can't see it, you will be able to buy it very, very quickly on Blu-ray. <laughs> well, let's start then, the good, the bad and the ugly. We'll start with Owen, Get uh, let our listeners get into his mindset about films a little bit. So Owen, if you'd like to sure. give us a review of the films that you've been watching this week. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, well, the first film I've picked for my good film, um, it's a film that uh, I haven't actually seen before, so it was, it was a new film to me. Well, quite an old film now. Uh, it's um, First Blood, the uh, Rambo film. Um, I have to say, when, when I was at school, a lot of my sort of peers, my friends, would say that it was a great action film, and I just thought, well, it sounds like a really boring one of the mill action film, Rambo's in a jungle, he's shooting people. Yeah, well, wasn't really that interested in it. But actually, I, I was really surprised. It was um, it was much better than, than I was expecting it to be. Um, there's a sort of deep sub, sort of context, subtext to it that, um, that I wasn't expecting, actually, to do with sort of Vietnam conflict. And uh, uh, and the character himself is, is quite a sort of sad, a sort of tragic character. Um but yeah, no, it was really good. I was really, really um, impressed with it, really entertained. And it was um, just just really exciting, actually. I thought it was a very good film. Um, I don't know if anyone else has seen it. Yeah, it's quite interesting because a few weeks ago, I admitted that I hadn't seen Rocky until that week. Right. Um, and it's another one. You know, over the last 20 or 30 years... Stallone has become a bit of a laughing stock uh, due to some dodgy film yeah. choices in the 80s. But if you go right back to the beginning of his career, both Rocky uh, and uh, John Rambo, they're, they're actually very, very complex characters uh, and quite understatingly played by um, Sylvester Stallone. I, I also really, really like First Blood and it, it he had range back then and it's a shame that he gets seen as this one-dimensional mumbling actor these days because back then he was actually it was really interesting to watch and he had a lot of screen charisma yeah that's right i mean especially in rambo um i mean i have I, i'm gonna hold my hands up as well and say i haven't seen rocky but he he's really good in in uh, first blood he, like you say he's got a great range for the character plays this sort of badass kind of almost um sort of a manly man kind of character, but at the same time, this sort of, sort of deep sadness to him. And uh, no, I was really impressed. I thought he was really good actor. Yeah, he, I mean, the fact that he created Rambo and Rocky as well is, is a bit of a testament to him. I think a lot of people forget that. Mm. that you know, he didn't just play these characters. He he, he made them and, and really shaped them completely. And yeah. Rambo, is the first one particularly, has got a lot a lot more going on than than first meets the eye, perhaps. But, the, I mean, l- later on in the trilogy, I think that kind of got diminished by how unashamedly action-packed they were, particularly, the, I mean, the, the reboot that they did a few years ago. Yeah. Fairly well, I, 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 yeah, I do have that on DVD to watch at some point. I, I'm, I am interested to see how it sort of compares to it, um, as well as the, the sequel to First Blood. 
But um, yeah, I've heard that they're just action-packed fodder, basically. Nothing, nothing deeper to them, um, which would be a shame because it was a um, really good film. What else the, have you been? The second one has a bit more going to it, but yeah, yeah. I think slowly got less and less meaningful. But no, apparently really just like the Rocky film. series as well. Actually, to be fair, <laughs> yeah, Rocky, Rocky kind of went the same way. Yeah, yeah, he's had a habit of taking. Well, I think probably due to studio pressure as much as anything, because I mean the, the the originals that Stallone's created obviously have all these layers of meaning, and then when it becomes so successful, I imagine he's he's put under pressure to maybe go with the more populist straightforward blockbuster kind of elements to the films so as the further you go down the line the less like his original sort of deep meaningful stuff is, is actually there but i think that's just a purely a result of success and trying to churn stuff out pretty quickly with keeping certain elements that have made it popular if, if that makes sense yeah yeah just to me uh so what else have you been watching this week owen um, okay, well, I went for a bad instead of an ugly film. Um, although, in some way, I suppose it, it could fit into uh, being an ugly film. But it's from, it's quite an old film. Um, it's from 1968, which was a great year for sci fi horror films. You know, 2001 Space Odyssey, Rosemary's Baby, Planet of the Apes, uh, you know, Night of the Living Dead, which, mm-hmm. mind in general, there are loads of films from that, that year, which are great. Unfortunately, this isn't one of them. Um, <laughs> it's a film that's called Death Curse of Tartu. Um, which, yeah, I said I'd bring these sort of films nobody wants to I watch. I like it. Podcast, this is good. There you go. <laughs> it's, uh, I don't even know if it's actually available in the UK on DVD. Um, but the reason that I've, I've mentioned it, I suppose, more is because it's um, a videotape I watched. And it's the first film I've seen on video for what must be about 12 years. Um, <laughs> so the sort of grainy image, the, the not very, the sound quality is really poor. Um, so it kind of does fit into that ugly category, um, but no, no, it's, it's a terrible film <laughs> all around, really. There's no, there's no redeeming factors to it. It's uh, very 60s. There's, there's a, the group of these kids go to this cursed island um, where there's this mummy, and he can transform into these different uh, animals that start attacking the group of kids. Um, but it, no, it's, it's, like I say, no redeeming features whatsoever. It's definitely... Definitely the bad film of the week. Sounds like a Scooby-Doo plot, actually. It's... Was there some kind of mystery vehicle? <laughs> well, it, yeah, there, there's a little bit of a mystery to it, I guess, but it's um, it's more like a Scooby-Doo cartoon in, in, the, in the middle of the film, well, sort of nearish the beginning. They just get up in the middle of the campsite, put the radio on, and start doing a, a dance. They start boogieing <laughs> about to some, As you do. to some 60s rock music, yeah. Yeah. Um, and they start running through doors and coming out of other ones, like on a long corridor. <laughs> yeah, just running along corridors, and it's the same plant, like going back and forth. No, it's um, oh, it's terrible. Uh, really, don't watch it. Well, <laughs> I'm going to move on to my film quickly. I've been a bit busy this week. I only managed to watch one film. I've been lucky enough to have been in London sharing a hotel with the West Indies cricket team, and hobnobbing with the likes of Robert Perez and Gianfranco Zola. Oh, so, <laughs> so, you know, I've... But I did manage to watch one film. Are any of you a fan of films about the Hungarian Revolution of 1956? Yeah, I've got about ten of them. Mm, I, yeah, thought, I thought you might. Yeah, are, are, that Spielberg one he did. Are any of you fans of water polo? Do you know what? This is you're teasing me in here. This is <laughs> I'm 
building up to a beauty here. Come on. Oh, well, this film is a documentary film. I've been meaning to watch it for a long time. It's called Freedom's Fury. It's partly produced by Quentin Tarantino and Lucy Liu. Strange combination, I know. But it is about the 1956 Summer Olympics, the Hungarian water polo team. And it sounds a bit strange, but basically they were up training in the mountains in a training camp near Budapest um, while the Hungarian Revolution was going on. And they ended up flying out to Melbourne where the Olympics were. I didn't know that the Soviet forces, had basically, Soviet Union basically had a puppet government in Hungary and the people revolted against it. But, but the Soviet Union, being the nasty bastards they were back then, decided to roll the tanks in and put a stop to it. And the so these uh, Hungarian water polo players didn't know until they got to the Olympics what had happened. And they ended up facing the Soviet Union. And the name of the the game actually ended, is now called the Blood in the Water match. Oh, wow. Such was the animosity between the two sides. It just got violent. And, the, you know, the players were punching and kicking each other. They were leaving leaving blood in the pool. And it's just sort of like, it sort of, I don't know how to explain it. It's kind of like how, how just through sport, you know, these people could act out how much hatred they had to what, uh, how much hatred they had against the nation that oppressed theirs so much and how sort of sport was the only way they could let it out. And because of sort of, there was a, there was a bit of a sort of, a Hungarian immigrant community, plus obviously a lot of Americans and Australians at the Olympic Games who all hated the Soviet Union. The crowd were really on the back of the Soviet Union as well and were sort of had to be removed from poolside by the police at one point. This sounds fascinating. I'm, I'm going to yeah. look out for that because I love that whole era, era of history. I've been to Budapest, I've been, I've been to Prague a lot, and I love that the whole kind of. Um, the Velvet Revolution that went on in the late 80s and things like that. But, yeah, communism and sport, there's so many fascinating mm. stories about the army teams and things like that. Yeah, I, mean, I wasn't it, aware of this at all, so I'm going to look this yeah, out. It's, it kind of follows the sort of star of the Hungarian team, Irvin, uh, Irvin Zador, which I may have pronounced wrong. But, yeah, I mean, I heard about it before. I heard about the Blood in the Water match. I thought, that sounds fantastic. And when I was sort of... So I made a documentary film about it. I've got to watch that. And eventually I got round to it. And I'm really glad I did because it was just sort of, it was excellent. It's the kind of film that once you've sort of seen it or heard about it, you could spend hours just clicking through Wikipedia pages reading about it. Isn't yeah. It? But it's yeah. Just... I, have, I, I haven't heard anything about it before. No, it seems really interesting. You can probably guarantee that I'll be straight on Wikipedia afterwards now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, then, James, what have you been watching over the last okay. seven days? Uh, well, this week, um, because there was uh, an England squad announcement for a major football tournament with a, an under-fire manager and a, a mediocre... Oh, I, I, I know squad, where this is going. Um, <laughs> I, I chose to watch One Night in Turin. Uh, uh, it's not where I thought it was going. <laughs> <from 2010. laughs> um, documentary from 2010. It's about England's Italia 90 campaign. Now... Me being the old bastard that I am compared to you youngsters, uh, Italia 90 was the first World Cup. I sat down and watched every match that was on. Uh, so I've got a lot of fond memories of Italia 90. I remember this England team. I watched most of the games up on a black and white TV with one of those little dials to change the channel where you had to manually go through all the atmospheric white noise and stuff to find the match because none of my family liked football. So I watched England's penalty shootout upstairs on my own as a 10-year-old crying my eyes out at the end of it you can 
I'm going to be so nostalgic about this film. And that's why I was asking beforehand how old you guys were, because I don't know if this film would have the same effect on you, but I cried at the end of this documentary. Starts off with the Waddle penalty, um, and then immediately you get the classic film, uh, film generic convention two months earlier and it goes through the amount of stick that Bobby Robson was going under before that tournament. Uh, the press wanted him out. The players had failed loads. They'd failed miserably in the previous tournament. Um, and it's narrated by Gary Oldman as well. So you've got a nice bit of uh, credibility there uh, with Gary Oldman. And it just, it's got loads of behind the scenes footage, which I'd never seen of the England squad relaxing loads of interviews with the players. It talks about that basically it elevates football as part of the human condition. I love films that do that, that, you know, football is more than just a sport. It's a more than 22 men kicking the ball around. It can define your nation at times. I think Italia 90 is one of the moments where we became proud of our football for the first time in years and people on the street could become proud of the football because we forget the decade before that anyone who went to football matches were classed as hooligans I, I used to go and see football matches in the 80s and I, had to, I was an eight-year-old boy and I had to carry a membership card with a photo I had to carry photo ID to go and see football matches because uh, the government at the time was so scared of people who went to football matches and we kind of take that for granted these days there's some brilliant um, Des Lynham outtakes it made me remember how brilliant Des Lynham was and Saint and Greaves in things like that but the bit that made me cry right at the end um, just before England's penalty shootout uh, and I'm not spoiling anything here because everyone, I'm sure everyone knows how the whole penalty shootout went. But um, Gazza had been booked and was going to miss the final if we made it. And they actually get a lip reader in and they subtitle and translate uh, Bobby Robson's words to Gazza. And he's saying, you've got your whole life ahead of you. This will just be your first. And he's talking about a World Cup. And you go on to realise actually Gaza never played in another World Cup. He lit up that World Cup. Uh, there's also some great footage of people like Roger Miller and Toto Scalacci. Basically, it is the most lovingly produced document of my first World Cup ever. And it is, uh, it's got music of the time. I cannot recommend it highly enough to anyone who likes football. <laughs> so two sporting documentaries this week. I know, it's interesting, isn't it? <laughs> um, um, the other film I watched uh, this week, and it was kind of a little bit because of uh, I watched The Dictator, I uh, went back and for the first time in absolute years, I watched the Marx Brothers' Duck Soup. Uh, it's available oh, on I Netflix. Love that. Yeah, um, it's 68 minutes long. It is pure comedy all the way through. It's I, I think it's the Marx Brothers' best. Uh, I quite like it. The explanation, because Duck Soup, it's, it's got absolutely nothing to do with the plot. It's... Groucho Marx plays Rufus T. Firefly, one of my favourite film names of all time, and he's essentially installed as a dictator by a wealthy widow who um, is basically, imagine if the bankers just decided to install a leader of a country. Um, but two of the Marx brothers, Harpo and Chico, play spies for the neighbouring country, uh, Sylvania, and they're trying to avoid war. It's, it's a kind of parody and a satire of war a little bit, but there's so many great one-liners, especially from Groucho Marx, but also a really good mix of uh, some slapstick comedy, some of the best lines and some of the most often imitated lines of the Marx Brothers era come from this film. And my favourite, the set piece really, is the, uh, one of the mirror scenes. And it's probably, I think it's the first time anyone did that classic two people pretending to be each other in the mirror type thing. But because the Marx Brothers are so damn good, they actually subvert the format 
the first time it ever gets done. So they're doing the mirror thing. Then they actually start messing around with the format of that kind of comedy before anyone's even had a chance to copy that kind of comedy. Absolutely fantastic film. If you've got an hour spare, go and watch it because it is one of the funniest films I've seen. Well, we'd best get on to Jerry's uh, picks for this week as we're running out of time for part one. Okay. Um, I'll be brief with the first one, which is a bit of a classic. I don't think I really need to go into it. Uh, I've never watched The Exorcist before this week, so after I've booed you for uh, not watching Rambo, I'm going to have to admit this one. Um, and I picked up the Blu-ray on James's recommendation, actually. Um, watched the full extended director's cut, and it was just... Uh, it was brilliant. Brilliant, brilliant film. But the, the main thing, I don't think I really need to talk about the film itself. I'm sure I'm like in a very tiny minority for not having seen it. Um, but the transfer on the new Blu-ray is absolutely mind-blowingly good. It does not look like a film from the mid-70s. It's just fantastic, really, really terrific effort. And uh, also lovely to see uh, Max von Sydow again. He's one of my favourite actors. So um, it was just a, a really good experience watching that late at night on my own in the dark. Didn't really <laughs> have the same effect of, of fear that I was assured it would do, but it was still excellent despite my uh, lack of fear from it. Um, another a film that I probably do need to talk about uh, is We Bought a Zoo, which I watched this week. Uh, it's a heartwarming story of a, a guy who buys a run-down zoo, uh, moves there with his, with his two kids, and he tries to make a success of it by you know rebuilding it, investing in it, and, and that process is sort of mirrored with his attempts to rebuild his own life after his wife's death. And he's sort of, you know, his relationships with his kids are, are affected by it. He's, he's got a young daughter. Who's, he's played by, uh, um, I think it's, it's Elle Fanning, who's Dakota Fanning's little sister. Starred Matt Damon as the main character. It's got Scarlett Hansen in, and actually she was really good in this. So that's now two films I've seen this year which are good and have Scarlett Hansen in. So my mind is <laughs> slightly blown by this. Uh, it's got another... Another recognisable actor in Thomas Hayden Church, who uh, a lot of people will recognise from Sideways as Damon's brother. Actually based on a true story, an English story as well, which is really good. It was uh, the guy, Benjamin Mee, uh, took over Dartmoor Wildlife Park, which I'm sure I've been to as well when I was younger. Uh, and this is an Americanised version. And despite being an Americanised version of a British story, it really is very, very good. Um, the characters were had a lot of depth to them, the main ones at least. Um, there was some good related. The dynamics between them were really interesting. Um, the animals were were great when they were in there. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a tiger who's one of the the main animals of the park who who takes on a lot of significance for them. And and just overall, it was it was a good, it's a really good film. Uh, nice heartwarming tale to to watch. Uh, good good Saturday Saturday afternoon, Sunday afternoon, Sunday evening kind of viewing. Really uh, cheerful film. Uh, it was just it was just a nice a nice viewing experience, so I highly recommend that. It came out last year. It was, um, I think it, it bypassed a lot of people, but it was really good, so uh, I recommend it. I did see the um, the trailer for that before, and uh, I have to admit it didn't really uh, appeal to me that much. I thought that the little girl would be quite annoying in it. She, that's the way she came across in the trailer to me. But it seems like she was actually pretty good. Yeah, she was very very good actually. Um, uh, that family are obviously doing something right with the the kids they're producing acting wise. Uh, <laughs> she was really good. She was funny. Um, she was you know came across as really intelligent for her age, and she had some of the most insightful lines in the film as well. 
I must say, it didn't really appeal to me that much when, when I saw the trailer of it either, but we, we ended up watching it and it, it was really good. So it was a, a surprising a surprising one, but, but very, very good. Well worth, well worth watching. It's not, not going to go on. No, no, just because just a quick point on the um on the Fanning family. I actually I saw a trailer um and I didn't recognise it with a grown up Dakota Fanning in it this week. Um she and she's playing an English girl who's got like a few months left to live or something, and is trying to live out all of her dreams or something like that. I can't remember the name of it, but I did not recognise for a second, which is interesting considering as a child actor she had a very, very kind of distinctive look. Yeah, she, I mean, she is pretty distinctive. I haven't seen anything of her for quite a few years, so I'd be quite interested to see what she's what she's surprisingly looking like now. She, as you say, Elle Fanning, you can tell that she's the Dakota Fanning's sister. Um, you know, she has that 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 look about her, but really, really good performance from her. And and um, Matt Damon's his usual excellent self. Actually, he was he was he was good in that role. Oh. That's all for part one, and in part two we'll be back with our triple bill feature looking at films of the 1970s. Welcome back to part two of this week's Fail Critic podcast. As always, we are on to our triple bill feature. This week we have picked our favourite three films that were released during the 1970s. James, if you'd like to kick us off. Yeah, well, as I said last week, I've, I've always felt that the 70s is the decade that cinema really grew up. Um, and also, quite you know, the last decade where cinema was still quite largely an adult pastime. And it's not to say kids didn't go to cinema, but, but I think a lot more adults did back then. And you could market films at adults and still get a very good return on your money kind of thing. And so filmmakers were given a lot of license to create films purely for an adult audience. And I was thinking through my choices, uh, and I was th- I had a load of films that I was choosing from the 70s. And I could have put, picked any number of at least 20 films that kept coming to my head. Um, but when I'd locked down a couple of my choices, I realised that both of those had caused censors, uh, trouble with censors on their release. So I decided that um, I was going to choose three films from the 70s to sum up my theme of adult cinema, and um, these are three films which had problems with censors to a certain amount. So my very first one is Monty Python's Life of Brian, uh, 1979, directed by Terry Jones, Terry Gilliam, and it just sneaks into the end of the decade because it was released in November 79, uh, just a month before I was born. tells the story of Brian, who was born around the same time as Jesus and grows up to inadvertently lead a revolution against the occupying Romans and become praised as a messiah. Obviously, of course, he's not the messiah. He's just a very naughty boy. Now, I think that the Holy Grail is Python's funniest film. Uh, but this pulls together, in my opinion, better as an all-round experience. It's got you know a tighter plot, uh, and it contains some of the best Python sketches ever. You know the "What have the Romans ever done for us?" sketch, the Judean People's Front sketches, um, and also, like I said, fits into my theme of films that uh, couldn't have been really been made any time before the seventies due to their controversial nature. I still find it quite astounding that the film received so much trouble with the censors because if you watch the film, the only real reference to Jesus in it at any point is actually just quite a realistic recreation of his Sermon on the Mount, uh, which they miss here, blessed are the cheesemakers and things like that. Um, 
But this, uh, unbelievably, this film was still banned from public performance in Aberystwyth up until 2007. And it, uh, the ban was only lifted when a member of the cast became mayor of Aberystwyth and repealed that ban. It was still banned in Torbay, which is near where I grew up uh, until 1987 due to blasphemy laws, apparently. Um, but it, it's got some fantastic performances. And uh, I, I absolutely love this film. I could watch this over and over again. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of, uh, well, all all of Python's work, really, but, um, yeah, it's just superb all around, really. I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to think of any kind of criticism I can level at it, and there's not really anything. It's even got a good ending, um, unlike Holy... My, my main issue with Holy Grail is they ran out of money and momentum, uh, but I think this ties up from beginning to end as a really good film. How about your next pick? OK, my next pick, well... I'm actually very pleased that Jerry decided not to talk too much about The Exorcist because that is my second choice. The Exorcist from 1973, probably my favourite horror film of the 70s and quite possibly my favourite horror film of all time, to be honest. William Frequin's adaptation of William Blatty's novel apparently at the time caused mass hysteria, fainting, and people literally vomiting in the auditoriums. I don't know how much of it is true, but uh, in the UK, so the legend goes, the St John's Ambulance were on hand at cinemas that were showing the film uh, to cope with all of this uh, frenzy that went around it. But uh, you cannot deny the fact The Exorcist was a theatrical event, the likes of which we've not really seen ever since in terms of being for an adult audience. If you adjust the figures for inflation, The Exorcist made the equivalent of over $1 billion in the US alone. It is the 10th highest uh, grossing film of all time if you adjust the figures for inflation. And it's the highest grossing R-rated film of all time. Uh, but apart from the fact is, there could have just been a lot of hysteria about it and people went to see it because of that. But beneath all that is an absolutely fantastic film. It tells the story of a young girl, Reagan, who becomes possessed by a demon have to say her initial medical examination uncovers a lot of the same symptoms as ADHD. So I'd be a bit concerned. I'm a bit <laughs> concerned as a parent now, uh, because really until she starts kind of going all a bit scaly, brings a voice from deep below the earth. Um, she could just be a really annoying child, but she plays it really well. And I th you look back and think, actually Linda Blair did a really good job with that character because as Child actors can go one of two ways. They can be really believable because they're not actors or they can be the stage school type. Well, no child ever really acts like that. And she's really believable because she's not really uh, had that acting experience. So it came totally from within. The uh, actual exorcism itself only lasts on screen for a total of about nine minutes near the end of the film. But the build-up to it is so perfectly pitched. Um, fantastic direction from Freakin. Terrifying use of Mike Oldfield's tubular bells. And um, there's some really good subtle imagery and things like that, especially if you see the director's cut on a Blu-ray transfer. Fantastic performances all around. Linda Blair received an Oscar nomination for her role. Uh, and obviously the magnificent Max von Sydow. Uh, I absolutely adore this film. Like I said, I only watched it a couple of weeks ago and it made me realise how brilliant it was all over again. And your final choice? Final choice, okay. To be honest, I probably could have chosen three Kubrick films uh, as my top three, uh, as he was really in a purple patch at this time. However, I've gone for A Clockwork Orange from 1971, and not just because it fits into my decade of adult cinema and trouble with census themes, simply because I think it is one of the greatest films ever made. It gets better with every viewing, in my opinion. I watched it again this week to confirm my suspicions. 
It's based on the US release of Anthony Burgess's novel of the same name, crucially missing out the final redemptive chapter. And it introduces us to one of cinema's most enduring anti-heroes, Alex, played by Malcolm McDowell. Start of the film, Alex and his band of droogs are dishing out ultra-violent beatings and rapes to anyone they come across. Absolute scum of society, but somehow we are drawn into Alex's world by a rare, brilliant use of narration, uh, which humanises Alex to an extent. He's caught and sent to prison, volunteers for a programme which will rehabilitate him and set him free by changing his psychological makeup so that violence and sex makes him physically sick, which... Uh, uh, anyone who's seen South Park, the movie, will get the reference there, finally. Um, the thing is, everything about this film, in my eyes, is perfect. The use of classical music during it. This could have been one of my contenders for best soundtrack, to be honest. Um, the music actually runs through the film almost like a silent cinema score at times. And it looks, uh, during some of the most sadistic sections, it looks like a, an ultraviolet version of Fantasia. It, uh, the violence is poetic and balletic uh, and operatic the performance is very very strong like a lot of Kubrick's work they're very alienating and almost unnatural at times and the same goes for the direction it make it constantly makes you aware that this is being directed you are not watching a piece of documentary film you know this is staged and that works really well in the hands of a master like Kubrick because I think it allows the audience to empathise more with Alex, which is vital to the story. Because if this was a straight-up, realistically uh, presented film, there is no way on earth you could ever sympathise even for a second with someone like Alex. But because of the way Kubrick films it and draws us into his world, we end up kind of rooting for this murderer and rapist, which, to my eyes, is genius filmmaking. I mean, it's... um. It's a fantastic film. I, I think if you if you if you've read the book, you know that the book's main sort of um, drawing point is the use of the written language, um, mm. which Kubrick manages to transfer into the film really well, and then add something extra with the the same track that you mentioned, the same yeah. the use of the classic music. It just draws out all of these uh, emotions from the film, um, and and I, it, it does change sort of little feet, uh, scenes in the film. Like this, where he takes the two girls back to his flat. So yeah. I don't know if you. Yeah, yeah, no, I read the book as a teenager as well, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but it's great. He manages to still make it such a, a brilliant film. I know you shouldn't always judge a film by how it compares to um, the book or, or play or whatever it's based on. But um, no, I think it's a fantastic film. Oh, we'll move on and get my choices out of the way. Uh, <laughs> I also went for The Life of Brian. Uh, it's a it's a fantastic comedy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, uh, that's the first time we've had crossover on a triple build. But that's, I mean, that's nice the, the, pro- the problem with a lot of comedy films is that they some don't stand the test of time. You'll be fantastic and well received comedy thirty forty years ago, and you watch it now. You know, the, the time span can be even less than that. And you think well, it's, it's not funny. Why was I laughing at that? <laughs> but it's you know, like you said, there's some great there's some great scenes like the Judean people's front and what the Romans do for us in the end scene where they break in the always look on the bright side of life. My favourite scene is probably the one with the, the prisoner leaving, you know, the guard saying, you know, crucifixion. And he goes, no freedom, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so, and the, and the guard, and, yeah, the guard looks so happy that somebody's actually not going to get put on a cross. He goes, yeah, he said, I can go and live on an island somewhere in peace for the rest of my life. No, I'm only joking. <laughs> All right, crucifixion, one cross each. 
And I think what helps it not be dated is because it is set 2,000 years ago. Yeah. There's no way it could be dated because it's historical. So, so there's no there's no pop culture references or you know modern references at all. So I think in 100 years' time, whatever format we're watching films on then, we'll still be watching and laughing at Life of Brian. Uh, I think the second film I've picked... I don't think anyone else would have gone for it. It stars Gregory Peck, Laurence Olivier, James Mason, and a young Steve Gutenberg before he got into Police Academy and um, um, what's the film? Uh, Short Circuit. Oh, I thought you were going to say Three Men and a Baby. But... <laughs> no, it's, it's the boys. <laughs> so many great. Yeah. We need to do a Steve Gutenberg triple bill. <laughs> uh, the the film that I've picked is The Boys from Brazil. Oh yeah, yeah, lovely. From 1978, tells a story of. Well, basically, Joseph Mengele, the the doctor from Auschwitz, has somehow escaped, like a lot of Nazis actually did in real life, to South America. And he's found um, and discovered by uh, Steve Gutenberg's character, and who contacts some Nazi hunters in Austria, and they hunt him down. They find out that he's been cloning Hitler, and he's basically kind of a whole, you know, there's loads of kids that are basically cloned from Hitler and being raised throughout the world, in fact. And it gets to the end of the film, um, and I forget the name of the main character now, um, Lieberman, that's it. He's he's basically found what Mengele's doing, he's found a list of all these kids' names, he's even in fact met one of these children, um, and at the end of the film, another character says, you've got to expose Mengele's scheme, you've got to expose what he's doing, you've got to expose that he's all these you know kids that are basically Hitler all around the world, and he doesn't, he burns the list of names. Um, uh, it's it's, a, it's just a, it's a real. I think it's partly I like it because I'm quite into. I don't believe them, but I'm quite into reading about mental conspiracy theories. That have, you know, that are <laughs> probably going to be in no way true, which is probably why I'm really going to enjoy Iron Sky. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but I, mean, I don't know if any of the rest of you have seen The Boys from Brazil, but it really is. It's quite. It's just you know some great performances from you know Peck, Olivier, and Mason, and great cast list. Yeah. You know. Uh, that that's three of their each of their generation. They're three of the the great actors mm. from each of those generations. So no, I, I love that film. It's a great film. And my final pick. It's an obvious one, but I don't know how anybody. I know James went for a theme within a theme, but how anyone can compile a list of their favourite films from the nineteen seventies and not go for Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. You know, I didn't see that film until obviously the late nineties because of that. I'm not old enough to have seen it in the seventies. But even then, it just—it's brilliant. It's epic. Is I think how you describe a film like that from the first moment when you see the opening crawl. You've never seen anything like that in a film before. I certainly hadn't. I don't think many films would try it. You see that a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Then the you know the writing coming up the screen, and then they start it off by just basically a massive spaceship coming overhead. Yeah, it, uh, yeah, I, I cannot argue with Star Wars. I'm, 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 as you know now, I'm, I'm old. I'm of the generation that used to watch it on ITV on a Saturday afternoon before Lucas started getting all precious over uh, broadcasting rights of his films and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, so my first impression of it was in a TV, and like you say, completely blown away. As a child, it takes you to an entirely new world. And then as an adult, you can enjoy it for all the extra kind of layers of subtext we might choose to. Uh, we might choose to believe as part of it. I, I think 
sometimes I think there's so much subtext going on there, and other times I just think George Lucas winged it, made it up as he went along, but, I mean, and it's... loads of academic synths have decided to put their own spin on it. That said, it is one of the most enjoyable uh, films I've ever seen. You know, you've got you've got the 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 young hero who's just thrown into it at the start. You've got the wise old man. You've got the lovable rogue. You've got the the comic relief with the two droids. You've got a princess. You've got some pretty scary, well, intimidating bad guys. You've, and it, then, you know, that's just a, that's a good basis for a, for just any old film. But it's essentially you, narrative one hundred and one, yeah. isn't but it? But then you throw, yeah, then, and... then throw it into space. Yeah. <laughs> and, and what's quite good about it is, I think a lot of sci-fi films and sort of space films I'd seen, as you know, before I'd seen that, everything looks new. And what Star Wars did was like, well, no, just because it's in space and, you know, it's set in the past, but like the future kind of thing, just because it's set then doesn't mean everything's got to be new and shiny. They're going to, they're the rebels. They're going to have banged up old spaceships. Mm. I mean, the X, yeah, the X-Wing's the equivalent of my old Vauxhall Astra. <laughs> no, Star Wars made my list as well. I think, I think you summed it up perfectly. It's just one of the most enjoyable films that you can, you can really think of. Like when I was a kid, it, it's just so so magical. It takes you to somewhere that you you wouldn't really ever go or see in in any other medium as well. I think that's one of the the brilliant things about Star Wars is that it it does so many things that you can only really get with cinema and with you know big uh, dramatic Hollywood productions. I mean, well, it's just fantastic. So that was that was the first one on my I've, list as well. So um, and I think um, one of the things that stands true with Star Wars. I can't remember who said this quote, but I had it a long time ago. Up until you're about 12 years old, you grow up wanting to be Luke Skywalker, and as soon as you hit 12, you realise you really want to be Han Solo. Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, think I, feel, I feel like I missed out on Star Wars. I didn't see it when I was a young kid. I saw it when I was a bit later uh, in my life, um, and I wasn't that keen on it. I know that's a bit of a blasphemous thing to say, especially when it's being recorded and other people are going to hear you say it, but <laughs> Star Wars... It didn't really do much for me. We're going to Sorry. publish your address now as well. And just <laughs> get you lynched. Yeah, I, yeah, I'll remain anonymous. Just get, have you have have hate mail just sent to you now instantly? <laughs> uh, You're yeah. right. Though. I think it does depend when you saw mm. it because if you did want to take a purely critical adult look at it, I'm sure there are a lot of flaws. But I can't see I can't see those flaws because of my history with that film, and I think most young blokes our age. Are exactly same. Mm. If you haven't seen it till twenties, I can totally imagine you having a completely different experience. Anyway, as Jerry's got a bit of crossover with my list, let's crack on with his. Yeah. So as I say, my first one was Star Wars purely because there's no way I could leave it off the list. You know, we're not doing greatest films ever. We're doing my favourites, and that is one of my favourites. Another one which is a, an absolute favourite, which I think is probably my surprising choice. We'll, we'll say. Um, and again, it's a childhood favourite, is 1973's Robin Hood, the Disney film. Oh, yes. I watched that for the first time in ages a couple of weeks ago. It's still brilliant. It, it's fantastic. I mean, as I say, it was a childhood favourite. It's, it's one of those that I think part of part of the enjoyment for me is, is the sort of happy memories I have of watching it. Uh, it was written by Larry Clemens, who also did The Jungle Book, The Aristocats, uh, Fox and the Hound. So, you know, he's got that big pedigree with 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 all sort of Disney animated films. Um, it's got not really any big stars in it, although it was Peter Ustinov was uh, King Richard. And also um, the guy who plays Friar Tuck has a really distinctive voice, is Andy Devine. 
and I noticed him in uh, the man who shot Liberty Balance, and I noticed him because that voice is so distinctive <laughs> that it was. I was like, mm, that, that guy sounds like Friar Tuck. I had to I, I do it, do what Steve loves doing, and uh, get IMDb out and check who he was. Um, it's just you know, it was nominated for an Oscar. It's a fantastic film. If for anybody who hasn't seen it, basically it's it's the classic Robin Hood story, but the the main characters are actually sort of human like animals. Um, Robin Hood's a fox. Uh, when he wants to disguise himself, he he dresses up like a stork. You know, there's there's just so many fantastic little bits in it. It's really lovingly created. You can tell they really they they really respected the the legend. They didn't you know they didn't try and take the piss out of it. But at the same time, they had a lot of fun with it. And it's really an enjoyable film. There's a lot of um, jokes, you know, kid jokes, obviously. But but there's still humour when you watch it again as an adult. It's still still quite funny it's still brilliant and it's just so so lovingly made that you, you can't help but, but have a smile on your face when you're watching it i mean it, it's just it, it's a bit sad really that disney's animated output you know non-pixar stuff now doesn't really come close to this kind of thing in my opinion i think pixar is is the sort of animated films that that do the kind of thing that robin hood and, and you know jungle book and all those kind of films were doing in, in the 70s and there's something just quite beautiful about the hand-drawn characters and everything. And I think it is a bit of a shame that we've lost that. Well, we've lost it to an extent. There's still some really good animators working in that style across the world, but mainstream cinema, we've really lost that. Also, the other thing I want to say is Robin Hood does get really dark at one point. It gets quite, you know, depressing. Uh, I oh, think, yeah. And not in Nottingham. Uh, the the song when they're all banged up in prison for not paying their taxes. That's one of the saddest things I've ever seen in an animated film. Full stop. Yeah, it, it's not just a you know a straightforward kids romp. There is a lot there is a lot going with it. It's not just a sort of superficial treatment of it. As I say, they they, they respect the, the legend and they do a lot with it and they they still have fun with it. But they also they, you know they don't shy away from the the dark side of it. And there is sort of that ambiguity about you know Robin. Well, he's still robbing people at the end of the day. So, <laughs> you know, they, they don't shy away from that too much. I mean, it's a Disney film, so it's a little bit saccharine. But, you know, it overall, it's just one of those films that if you sit down and watch it, I mean, me and a load of my mates at uni a couple of years ago sat down and watched it, and we were all just sat there with a big grin on our faces. It's, yeah. just, it's just a fantastic It's better film. than the Ridley Scott version. There we go. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 uh, I avoided that one. Speaking of Ridley Scott, I'm not going to get too much away when I say that my other choice for the triple bill was right at the end of the decade, Alien, one of my favourite films of all time, certainly my favourite film uh, of the 70s after Star Wars. There's just so much going on with that film. Um, so just an absolute masterpiece, so atmospheric. Uh, you know, Scott just uses the cameras and the, the sets are brilliant, but he uses the cameras to sort of create that claustrophobia, the, the idea of being trapped on a ship and, stranded in space and, and and how horrifying that would be and how you know the fact there is no escape for them on this ship anybody who hasn't seen alien you probably know the story it's uh, a, a ship they go down to a, to a, answer a distress call come across some kind of alien beings uh which attacks uh john hurt's character um and he's so they take him back to the ship and leave the planet and then obviously they don't realize that the alien has implanted itself in him. Now, the thing, there's there's so many amazing things about Alien that you don't really give credit for when, if you just watch it once and you don't really know much about the film. So, for instance, that iconic scene with John Hurt when the, the alien bursts out of his chest 
uh, he was the only one who really knew the specifics of that scene. The, the rest of the cast knew vaguely what was going on, but they didn't know specifics. So, like, the characters weren't expecting to get sprayed by, by blood. So the, the shock and the reaction to that blood flying all over them is, is genuine. And it's little stuff like that that just, if, in my opinion, makes makes Scott's direction of this just so amazing. Sigourney Weaver is absolutely iconic uh, as Ripley. Interestingly enough, Ripley in an early draft was a male role, which I think when you consider how widely um, sort of regarded as one of those sort of iconic female performances and how she sort of subverts the male traditional role as the, the protagonist is, is quite interesting in that the early drafts of the script had, had all the characters as, as basically unisex, uh, but they never imagined Ripley being a woman, which I thought was quite interesting. There's another reason to love Alien is it's got, got lots of Joseph Conrad references in, who's one of my favourite authors. Uh, the ship's called the Nostromo. Um, if anybody hasn't looked into H.R. Geiger, who's the, the guy who, who designed the iconic stuff, um, don't look at it at work. If you listen to the <laughs> work, don't don't do that because it's very very sexually explicit. Um, but the thing that really blew my mind as an adult watching Alien again because I watched it when I was younger, but then really watching it again is the the sexuality of the of the, of the film is just incredible. The attention to detail about how they went about this. Basically, the writer says that the whole he wanted to sexually assault the audience when he made this film. He wanted to really target people, and he specifically said he wanted to target the men in the audience. Uh, and basically, the whole thing is about like rape and all these sexual fears that men hold. Uh, so the alien jumps on his on John Hurt's face and sticks sticks a phallic like tail down his throat and implants its eggs in him. Um, so it's basically he he descri describes it as uh, homosexual oral rape. Um, there's so many phallic things in there. Um, there's, there's a lot of stuff that's, that's shaped like the uh, the other end, shall we say. Um, <laughs> and there's, you know, there's the whole thing about birth and, and there's so many fears and the comprehensive way that they went about making this incredible attention to detail with the symbolism, with the art direction, with the whole, the whole thing, the way it's written. It's such a, a complete attempt to just assault the audience and make them scared, not just because you're scared because you're trapped on a ship with an alien, but it, there's, there's underneath all that, there is this whole subtext of, of rape and, and sexual things that are just completely assaulting the audience. And it's quite terrifying if you watch the making of documentary and see the guy who who wrote it saying he wants to sexually assault the audience because he's not the uh, most normal looking man. Um, <laughs> so, you know, he does look like the kind of person who wants to sexually assault people. I'm not going to make any bones about it. So it's just... It's a monumental effort, really. I mean, it's good on a you know on a sort of superficial look at it, but if you really rewatch it, I recommend anybody who's watched it before but hasn't particularly picked up on this rewatch it and just look out for all the phallic stuff. Look out for for how they're trying to be symbolic and use things. It's just an absolute masterpiece. Oh, I think Alien I... is, is is probably as much as I like The Exorcist, it's it's the greatest horror film of all time because there is just so much going on with it. Oh, you, I... you avoid it. Oh yeah, I love Alien. Alien was so close to being on my list until I went in, until I went down the the route I went down. Uh, you kind of forget that Sigourney Weaver was pretty much an unknown at that time, and she she more than holds her own against people of the caliber of John Hurt, uh, Ian Holm, who is fantastic uh, as um, is it, uh, as the kind of otherworldly uh, 
the android on the ship. And also Harry Dean Stanton as well is fantastic in it. Uh, no, I, I absolutely love it. And I am I cannot wait for Prometheus, which I believe is also another um, literary reference uh, as well. Um, yeah, no, two weeks we'll be reviewing Prometheus. Cannot wait for that. But yeah, no, you're right. I kind of judge for, you know how people, I think it's a Tarantino quote from Pulp Fiction says that you know people are either a Beatles or a Stones man. Uh, in terms of film, I'd like to put people in the, you're either an Alien fan or an Aliens fan. Uh, and I tend to judge people differently according to their answer. Well, we'd best get on to <laughs> Owen's selection. We know Star Wars isn't going to be in there. What is <laughs> Owen? Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I sort of, I think it was Jerry who touched on the theme of picking three favourites um, rather than three sort of iconic films or three um, traditional classic films. Um, so I went for three that I think are probably three of my favourites from that era. Uh, I do feel, though, I'm going to say before I, I mention my favourites, I, I felt certain someone would mention either Godfather or Halloween, um, both of which are on, on my list. So I feel like, I, okay, the three that I've chosen, I should have perhaps <laughs> But anyway, <laughs> um, I'll move on to my first, which is a film from um, probably when I was first properly getting into films. It's a little bit of a curveball, I suppose. It's a film called Drunken Master, which is a Jackie Chan kung fu comedy film. Uh, yeah, I, I didn't think that would cross over with anyone else's list. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a film that... Um, yeah, I, it was just a period in my life where I was I was starting to watch films more, uh, moving away from you know children's films or uh, sort of teen films and moving into a bit more action film, sort of the thing you know teenage boys would like. Moving on to you know Bruce Lee that kind of thing, but Jackie Chan really captured the sort of film that I, I wanted to watch. I thought it was funny film. It's um, a, a great action film as well. Some of the set pieces in it are fantastic to watch. And it's a great performance by Jackie Chan as well. Uh, I think it was it sort of sandwiched between um, Snake in the Eagle's Shadow and a film called uh, Master with Cracked Fingers, which really propelled his career. And, um, you know, before that, he was just almost an extra in, in uh, Bruce Lee films and other, other kung fu films from that, from that period. But I thought it was, it was a great film. And... Um, yeah, I don't. I don't really know what else to say about it. I, it's it's just one of those films from my childhood that I can still watch now and still get something out of, and yeah, it's just a really um, enjoyable film. I do. Uh, know I mean, those, yeah, those early Jackie Chan films. I remember watching about ten of them in a, a weekend when I was at college, renting them on VHS from my local independent video store. But I've not seen them for years, and I. I I know I've seen this film, but I could not tell you a thing about it, and it makes me think I should go back and revisit. Yeah, you should. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, like I say, it's, it's just a great comedy film. It's a great, um, great action film, great kung fu film, good performance, good set pieces. I mean, there's there a lot of positives to describe it. It's obviously, um, not a great film like The Godfather, for example. You you couldn't you wouldn't hear Mark Commode talking about it uh, on his latest podcast. But it's 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 a great film. I really really enjoy it, um, and I still revisit it every so often. Um, but my second my second film um, is going back to when I said I, I, I like horror films. It's a bit more well known than uh, Death Curse of Tartu, but I've gone for uh, Dawn of the Dead. Uh, I'm a bit of a George Romero fan really like my zombie films and 
it's another film from seeing it fairly young. I think I must have been 13 or 14, scaring the bejeebus out of myself. <laughs> and it just stays with me. I mean, it's one of those films I can look back on now and still say it's one of my favourite films. I, I, I watched it recently. I tend to watch it, actually, probably every 12 months. I know that's pretty sad. Um, but it's, it's no, it's a great film. If you don't know the, the plot to Dawn of the Dead, um, then we're probably not friends. But it's Dawn of the Dead uh, <laughs> about some people who try and escape the zombie apocalypse. They, they end up in a shopping mall and um, try and turn it into a sort of fort or a home. There's, um, there's a woman who's pregnant and her boyfriend who's a helicopter pilot. Um, but it's also got two, two other great people. Actually, one is Ken Forey, who uh, is probably best known to people of my generation as the dad from Keenan and Kel. I don't know if you've <laughs> Keenan and Kel, that's him. Um, but no, it's, it's, it's a brilliant film. It's about survival. It's about life and death. Um, and also Romero sort of, sort of squashing into it as well. Um, his opinions, if you like, about commercialism, um, and about how there's a scene in it where I don't know if it's a spoiler, but basically Ken Forey is standing there and he says to his um, to his friends, they're all standing around at the shopping mall, looking down the escalator, and there are zombies just pounding on the door, and they're all trying to get into the shopping mall, and they go, "Well, what, what, why are they doing this?" And he sort of explains that they don't know what they're doing; they're just trying to get in. They, this is something that they they know, and it's just it's. Basically, Romero saying people are idiots. They're just trying to buy junk. They don't know why they do it. There's no reason or logic behind it. Um, so there's a, there's a sort of deeper element to it, which is which is interesting to 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 think about, I suppose. Um, but no, so it's a great film. I love it. I think there are great performances in it. And um, if, if nothing else, it, it, along with his previous film, Night of the Living Dead, it, it sort of revolutionised the creature of the zombie um thanks as well mostly i think to tom savini's um brilliant makeup uh but no it's a great film so i definitely definitely recommend that if you haven't seen it and i would say it's possibly my favorite film of the 70s it is it that's a brilliant film i saw i've seen that a few times since uh, i saw it about the same age as you actually i think when i first saw it uh, and you're right uh, the whole um, there's the kind of the almost comical sections where there's the music, which a lot of people yeah. will recognise as being the kind of the music right at the beginning of Shaun of the Dead, um, you know, which pays homage to Dawn of the Dead, um, where there are just zombies walking around uh, a shopping because they break in, don't they? And they're going right, up yeah. and down the escalator and they're kind of just walking into the shops and stuff like that. And it is it's really funny, but it also is also a really savage satire. Of oh that yeah, commercial aspect. And am I right in thinking it? It based the events basically pick up almost as soon as Night of the Living Dead ends. It's part of the same attack, isn't it? It's all it's, part of the same universe. Yeah, I, I think, attack, I think yeah. so. I mean, at the end of the Night, Night of the Living Dead, I won't say too much about it in case anyone ever watches it who hasn't seen it. And I urge you to. It's possibly my favourite film. But yeah, at the end of Night of the Living Dead, there, there were people sort of going around cleaning up the mess, basically finishing off the last of the zombies, almost. So I think it's set almost yeah. parallel just towards the end of Night of the Living Dead. Um, yeah. It's part and, of the same. Uh, yeah. I love that whole mythology it's got going. I actually went to see the uh the trilogy at the Leicester Space um centre. Uh, they screened it on their massive planetarium screen uh one night 
absolutely fantastic night. Uh, but yeah, I'd recommend watching all three of those films. George A. Romero, absolute legend. Love him. Anyway, your final choice, Owen? Uh, my final choice? I felt I couldn't really leave it out. It's not, it's not a fantastic film. I don't personally think it's a fantastic film. There's a sequel, which is actually better. But I've gone for Superman. Um, because I think what it did for comic book films, comic books in general, I am a bit of a nerd, so I do read comic books on bread. Um, <clears throat> but no, it's, it's what it did with Richard Donner's direction, taking the film seriously. I mean, there's obviously an element of uh, comedy to it and slapstick comedy as well. Uh, but he, d- he does treat the, the, the subject matter really seriously. He makes it a proper film. Um, and he's got, it's got quite an incredible cast, actually. And it's in- interesting that the way that the film was marketed, it didn't have um, Reeve as the, the main name on the film. It was Marlon Brando and Gene Hackman, who were the two big jaws to the film, um, who both play uh, Jor-El, who is uh, Superman's. No, I'm not going to bore you with all that. But yeah, they, they do play perhaps minor parts in uh, the sense that Jor-El's not, not really there that often. But as well, with Gene Hackman playing Lex Luthor, he's, he's great in it. He's really funny. He gives good performance. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's just a really revolutionising film. And without it, you probably wouldn't have had films like uh, The Avengers, which was reviewed a few weeks ago, which was a fantastic film. And it owes a lot of its um, credit to films like Superman, and um, Superman 2 as well, with Richard Donner, um, basically laying the foundations for future films like that. As well, I suppose as well, in a way, it was um, Tim Burton's films and Christopher Nolan's Batman films, they, they also owe a lot to Superman. It, it, it did really change the game to, for, for a comic book film. I think all comic book films since then owe a massive debt of gratitude to, oh, yeah. to those films, definitely, because I can't think of any decent comic book films before then to be honest so I, I think it kind of coincided with the the massive improvement in special effects and things like that uh but yeah. no, I, I love the superman that that's another childhood staple of mine is the superman film didn't brando get paid two million dollars for his he got oh um, yeah loads, yeah. loads for it and <laughs> there was a lot of, there was um a section of the film i think which they couldn't even use in superman 2 because it would have just cost too much money but he filmed a lot of it all for that one film yeah, they. Uh, he, he. Yeah, he, he was paid a, a generous sum. <laughs> anyway, he was, we he was best bastard to everyone as well, wasn't he? Like the he was. Yeah, yeah, that's right. We'd best finish up part two now because we've been going on for what seems like ages. <laughs> uh, we'll be back in the final part of this week's podcast with a review of the dictator. This is part three, then we will review the, one of this week's new releases, The Dictator, starring Sasha Baron Cohen, obviously of Ali G and Borat fame, uh, Ben Kingsley, and a number of cameo appearances from the likes of Megan Fox and John C. Riley. tells the story of a di- the dictator of a fictional North African country of Wadia, um, who, is, who goes to America um, with his country facing a lot of charges of bad human rights and um, trying to make weapons of mass destruction, etc. And yeah, just uh, tries to satire, well, dictatorships, democracy, and have a pop at a lot of other dictators like Kim Jong-il, Osama Bin Laden, etc., etc. What did we all think of the film? 
Uh, well, do you know what? Uh, it was it was interesting. I'll, I'll start off here. Well, just to let people know, it carry on listening to it. We're not going to spoil the film here, um, but we'll have a section afterwards where we might talk about it more in depth in the film. I don't want to spoil it. It's it's Sasha Baron's. Uh, Cohen's return to the scripted narrative film, which we haven't seen since Ali G in the house. Obviously, Borat and Bruno were very much kind of improvised, loosely structured, uh, filming bits and bobs with the audience, uh, with uh, members of the public, things like that. So I saw it in a half full cinema in the middle of the day. So I can't entirely judge the audience, fairly judge the audience reaction. However, I found it completely impossible to ignore the fact that different jokes made different small groups of people laugh. Um, There were very few universal laughs in the film, in my opinion. Uh, Quite often, I found myself laughing alone um, or some jokes fell completely flat. And it felt like the film was trying to please two very different audiences at the same time, the kind of teen gross-out audience and the liberal, oh, this isn't racist, he's actually holding a mirror up to the racists type audience. So, yeah, my... I felt it was trying to do too much. I felt too many jokes fell flat. However, some of the jokes were the kind of comic genius that I've come to associate Sasha Baron Cohen with, but it was just too hit and miss for me. Yeah, I'd agree with that. It was, it wasn't, you know, funny all the way through and it wasn't, it wasn't as funny as his previous work. It just seemed to be, there was a lot of not clever sort of, crass jokes in there that I'd kind of expect more to see from like um one of these terrible sort of date movie or superhero movie or one of those kind of films were just you know some slapstick is funny but some some of it's just really terrible and it's just like really obvious you know some sex jokes are funny or some fart jokes are funny it was really obvious ones that just sort of like no it's that's terrible and there were some really funny moments in it as well but it wasn't consistently funny all the way through no, I'd agree with that. I think some of the jokes, like you say, were very broad, and um, there were some sometimes, like as well with what James said, there were, there were people in the audience. There was one solitary, lonely voice laughing at one of the jokes. Everyone else, don't cold silence. Um, and then other times, I, but I, I think I had the experience where there, there were groups of people as well just laughing at particular jokes. But I thought there were a few. Um, sections to the film where everyone in in the cinema was on board with it and laughing at the same same thing. Um, but I, it wasn't a fantastic film. But I thought it was okay. For a modern comedy, I'm a bit down on modern comedies, but I thought that one was was okay. It was all right. Yeah, I, like I said, I, it, it was no Borat. Um, I, I still think Borat is the high-water mark of Sasha Baron Cohen's career so far. Um I would put it about on a par with Bruno, and I think it's better than Ali G in the house. Um, I thought Anna Faris gave a decent performance as the love interest. But, you know, I was really disappointed with Sir Ben Kingsley. He, I just felt he, he was underused. Yeah. For yeah. Somebody, so somebody who's so good, his role could have been better. Yeah. And the other okay. thing I would say is that some of some of the, especially near the beginning, the the Wadia scenes where the the dictator is in his home country, um, they weren't as funny as I hoped. And thinking about it afterwards, I think it might well be because the truth about real life dictators that he's parodying is already too funny, um, and it's impossible to top that in scripted comedy. For you know, for example, at one point, uh, 
the uh, Aladdin, uh, the the dictator, he's got an all female security detail that uh, apparently have sex with him. Okay, I find it I find it funnier that in real life, Colonel Gaddafi had an all female security detail that he made do the cooking and cleaning when they weren't on duty. Okay? <laughs> That's real, and I find that funnier than you know the kind of generic oh look the sexy female people have stripped down to their bra and pants and they're going to have sex. Yeah, I, I, I found, and, you know, the fact there's the, anyone who's seen the trailer will see the uh, the kind of 100-metre sprint scene, which was quite funny. He's shooting people and stuff like that. But I find it funnier that in real life, Kim Jong-il um, has got uh, the world record for the lowest ever uh, round of golf in which he got nine holes in one and scored a total of 46 strokes or something. You know, I think what these dictators do in real life is actually funnier than anything Sasha Barrico and could come up with. And I felt that at least when it moved to New York and you got that fish out of water thing, it got a little bit funnier there. I wanted the, the opening 20, 30 minutes to be funnier than it was. I think a lot of those scenes at the beginning, they, they almost felt to me like they were shot specifically to be included in a trailer, I think. Yes. I mean, the, the scene where he's shooting the um, the other runners, I mean, it's... It, that's in the trailer, isn't it? I mean, that's yeah. the way it came across to me. It's just like these, we can put these in a trailer, people can see it, just little funny-ish ditties, and then people can come and see the film. I mean, um, there, there, were, there were a few really funny sequences in it. I mean, I quite like the bit at the start where he's he goes to the, um, to the basically where they're making the weapons, and he's going on about how it has to have a pointy top rather than the yeah. round top to stick because <laughs> yeah. that yeah. way it sticks in the ground I thought that was really funny and when him and the uh, Nadal his well the guy who was in charge of his, his nuclear weapon program but was exiled are on the helicopter with the two with the two Americans yeah and, and, oh, yeah, and just, yeah. just talking in their own language about completely innocent things but it getting misconstrued um I wrote that down, actually. Uh, the helicopter scene was one of the absolute standout moments. Mm. I think, taken yeah. in isolation, that is comic genius. Um, but again, where I think the film may have fallen down is some of the jokes may have worked better if it had been a braver Borat-style thing where you had him interacting with kind of supposed members of the public and things. Where I think a lot of it fell down is... I. I didn't really care too much about his interactions with some quite two-dimensional characters, yeah. uh, like the people who worked in the uh, the vegan health food shop uh, and the people at the funeral. Yeah, I'm not going into detail too much, but he was interacting with two-dimensional caricatures, whereas in previous films, especially in Borat, um, a lot of the humour comes from the fact that a lot of the jokes would have been very similar, but the fact that he's getting away with things like this in front of what we know as real people, that makes it funnier. Whereas in The Dictator, you know that it's all been scripted and it's very safe. And I think that element of safety means it loses a lot of its shock value. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. Um, because it's not a real person, you don't... I mean, the, the reactions to him, it's... Yeah, it's okay. It's just... It, like you say, with Borat, it's unexpected. People are, are genuinely disgusted or outraged, and that's funnier. Um, but that's that's. The, I but it's, it's two it's two different kind it's two different kinds of filmmaking. Yeah. Borat yeah. and Bruno are, are what they call a mockumentary, isn't it? And yeah. this yeah. is a script. This is actually a, a proper screenplay. 
Yeah. And it's an improvement on Ali G in the house, which was the last film he did like that. So in, in some and sense... And that was terrible say, as well. That was terrible. This is better than that. So in some ways you can I, th- I think I think he's improved. I think his problem with Ali G in the house was that Ali G as a character was doing the same things as Borat and Bruno. Mm. He was he was a character, but he was engaging yeah. with real people. And then he took yeah. Ali G into a scripted screenplay. Yeah. And while and while it had funny moments, it it wasn't, you know, it wasn't brilliant. It wasn't as good, you know, it definitely wasn't Ali G as a character's finest moment. And maybe he works best with trying to create a character that he unleashes on the real world rather than somebody that's scripted. I mean, although The Dictator was funny in parts and it was definitely, you know, I wasn't, some films will walk out and think I've wasted money. I didn't particularly think yeah. I'd wasted my money. It's just, you know, I won't no. be in a hurry to see it again. Another problem I had with a film was, you know, a couple of times it tried to ram a message down your throat and I didn't really want to go and see a film to see that. <laughs> especially a com- Especially a comedy. It was as subtle as a sledgehammer as well. Oh, he, yeah. You know, he makes a good part. The fact is, he yeah. does oh, yeah, make I quite I mean, like um, that. But, but, I mean, even even the scene in the helicopter, which I found really funny, there's even the, the message in that, that, oh, just because they're talking a different language doesn't mean, you know, and you can't understand what they're saying, doesn't instantly mean that they, they're terrorists. You know, the message, but, you know, the speech at the end, which I'm sure we'll talk about in, in the, the spoiler alert segment, which we'll talk about in a minute, um... You know, there's, there's such a massive message being rammed down your throat. And it's all obvious. It's all true to yeah. an extent. But it's just like, well, I want to laugh. Felt, I don't want to I, I laugh, not a lecture. Yeah, it felt like sixth form politics. The, mm. fact, you know, the fact is there was a very real kernel of truth at the yeah. heart of it. And, um, but it was quite... It was. I, I was. I'll be honest. I was still laughing at it, but I was the only one in the cinema who was laughing at that. Mm. Uh, and there was a lot of people around me Sadly, I think, although it was as subtle as a sledgehammer, I still think it went over the top of a lot of people's heads, unfortunately. But then, I mean, there's still a lot of people who think that, you know, before they realised it was a character, some people thought Ali G was actually a real... He was actually the real person. So, I mean, that's there's a a certain element of people that will go and watch his films that are those kind of people. Yeah. Going back to the unscripted element, I think it really shows because if you see... Sasha Baron Cohen as the dictator on a number of talk shows and things leading up to the release of this film. Mm. Again, they're really funny um, because it's unscripted and you know that the person he's talking to doesn't know what he's going to say next. And I, I really, I don't want, I wouldn't want Sasha Baron Cohen to feel like he needed to be pigeonholed. He doesn't need to listen to me anyway. The fact is he's 40, he's married to Isla Fisher and he's a millionaire. What have I got to <laughs> tell the man? Um, and who is to really blame him for starting to play it a little bit safer, to be honest, because he is a Hollywood big shot now. Uh, I can't blame him for being a bit safer. I just feel a little bit sad that we're probably never going to get something as groundbreaking and as genuinely hilarious as Borat from him again. Yeah, I mean, it's tricky, though, for him to do something like that now, isn't it? Because everybody exactly. knows he is. Yeah. I mean, if you think, like, jackass, I mean... Uh, was never a, a huge fan of it, but it was tough for them to play pranks on people. Well, I suppose it's more like Dom Jolly. Um, yeah, he can't keep doing trigger happy TV when everyone sees him and knows what he's doing. Um, no, I mean, so it's, it's tricky, tricky for him to try and replicate something like Borat. So fair enough, I think for attempting a, a scripted film, I think he gave it a good shot. It was okay. It was funny in parts. Um, I don't think he did too badly, actually. Yeah, I, I, I feel a bit unfair. 
you know, comparing it all solely to his previous work, because to be honest, compared to a lot of other scripted comedy that will come out of Hollywood this year, this is far better. So, you know, let, let, I don't want to put people completely off going to see it. Um, it had enough jokes, had enough laughs in there for me to come out, like you say, not feel like I've wasted my time or my money there. I, on the whole, enjoyed it. But uh, and I'll be honest, I thought it was better than Bruno. But it, I was hoping for a bit more. And maybe it's just, it says to me, Sasha Baron Cohen isn't Chris Morris and I need to get over that. <laughs> Well, I think we've spoken about as much of the film as we can without spoiling anything. So, James, do you want to wrap up the podcast and explain what's happening in, well, the next minute or so, really? The change yeah, to uh, the podcast. Yeah, we, you know, we listen to the people. The people have spoken and we're going to at least experiment. Um, basically, we're going to have a new section called Spoiler Alert, which will follow directly after the podcast, where we will discuss a little bit more uh, about the film that we've seen on the understanding that people listening to it have also seen it or just don't care and want to listen to us anyway. Uh, so we will talk about the film, uh, but beware there be spoilers here, that kind of thing. Um, next week, we will be reviewing... Possi- oh, do you know what? we Our, our diaries are chocolate at the moment. It'll probably be The Raid or Men in Black 3, or possibly both. Who knows? We'll let you know. Uh, so that'll be what we're reviewing next week. And also, just to let everyone know, next week's Triple Bill will be films that take place in 24 hours or less. So basically, what's going to happen now is we're all going to say goodbye, and then there'll be a bit of music... And then if you have seen Dictator, listen on if you want. We'll be discussing it with spoilers. If you haven't seen a Dictator and you don't want it spoiled, turn off after we've all said goodbye and there's a bit, little bit of music or else you're going to ruin the film. Excellent. So, yes, that's it for this week. Uh, we'll be back at the same time next week. James, would you just like to tell everybody again where they can find the um, the blog, the podcast, the Twitter, etc.? Yeah, yeah, that's it. You can find us on Twitter at at the failed critic and use the hashtag failed critic hashtag. Uh, we're also on the blog on thefailedcritic.wordpress.com and on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash failed critic. Okay, well, that's it for this week then. Uh, we'll be back next week with uh, our triple bill um, of films that take place in less than 24 hours The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, films we've been watching in the last seven days and a review of either The Raid or Men in Black 3, or possibly both. Critic Podcast is recorded and edited by Steve Norman with contributions from James Diamond and Jerry McCauley. The Failed Critic Podcast was created by James Diamond and is hosted by Liberated Syndication Podcast Hosting Services. Music by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. So welcome to what is effectively the bonus track on this week's Failed Critic Podcast and what we hope to be doing if it goes down well uh, for the foreseeable future. Section 4 is called Spoiler Alert, where we'll talk about this week's new release in a bit more detail, um, fully spoiled up. 
so basically, if you've seen the film, you can listen to us talk about it in full without ruining it for yourselves. Um, so yeah, where should we start? Oh, I think oh, the introduction I... to the film is <laughs> the best, one of the best things about it, where it just comes up in loving memory of Kim Jong Il. I thought that was, a, <laughs> I thought that was really funny, actually. Oh no, he couldn't have died at a better time for <laughs> yeah. kind of the press junket for this film. Because didn't um, I'm pretty sure uh, the dictator on the red carpet for the Oscars he spilt Kim Jong Il's. Uh, ashes over Ryan Seacrest yeah. on the red carpet mm. as well. So that just, that was, Ali, uh, Ali, Sasha Baron Cohen must have been just kicking himself with joy when Kim Jong-il died and thought, brilliant, I can write that in now. That's fantastic. Obviously, I'm sure he did as a, a humanitarian as well, like most of us in the world. But, um, <laughs> uh, but I'd I, do you know what? I'd like to start off just by saying, talking about a few things that I did think did work with the film because I felt... Maybe I was a little bit harsh in the review. There were some brilliant, brilliant... I loved the um, the kind of cutthroat running gag uh, where Aladdin, basically anyone... It, it was a silly joke, but anyone that crossed him slightly and the montage of him doing the cutthroat gag, and especially when he's walking through that cafe of all the, the exiles and there's even the cow being served mm. as food... <laughs> And it goes back to him doing a cutthroat thing at the character. I thought that was a really nice running gag yeah. through the way. I also really loved the reworking of the classic "Get your name from something you see" gag. Oh, that Didn't was you? that oh, was brilliant. Yeah, fake name, and but he did something new with it, and he just kept hammering it yeah. to death so that it became funny. Um, and it was just, Mo, that is a made-up name. Yeah, <laughs> what is your name? And so he'd do another one, and it, it reminds me a bit when it, whenever I go and see Stuart Lee, for example, um, stand-up comedian who I love, and part of his whole thing is to keep hammering something that isn't funny over and over again, and his deliver until he makes you believe that it's funny. And I think Sasha Baron Cohen did this with that whole um, get your name from something. You, and it, although again, I did think that few- was rather childishly funny for the first time he done it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought he could have kept doing it, actually. I thought, there were, like you're saying with Stuart Lee, where he just keeps repeating yeah. something until you find it funny. I thought he could have gone even further with it sometimes. Yeah, I, I, I put, yeah, if Stuart Lee had been in charge of this film, that <laughs> section in that cafe would have been half an hour long oh, where he right, just yeah. came up with new names. <laughs> <laughs> um, I really liked the torture scene with John C. Riley. I thought that was a not, you know, where he's, where he's about to be tortured and he's just completely dismantling John C. Riley's confidence about torturing him because his equipment is so terrible. Uh, I thought, I personally thought that was quite a nice touch as well. And yeah, again, the, the helicopter scene, it, one of my favourite scenes that I've seen in the cinema in terms of comedy for a, a long time. I thought mm. that was a real standout scene in there. It was, it was, bri- and it was so brilliantly scripted. So that That's you, right, yeah. they had a, they did have a very genuine um, conversation. None of the none of the references to Osama bin Laden or not, especially like the Porsche nine eleven yeah. uh, reference, yeah, you know, things like that. Um, it was really, really well put together, and I I can't help thinking that if the rest of the script had been had that much care and attention taken over it, there would have been a higher hit rate with the jokes. I also have to say I was the bits where I was the only person in the cinema that laughed. The rape center joke which I'm not one of those people that thinks that any reference to rape is funny. I think it has to be funny for it to be funny. It's not just just saying rape isn't funny, but but just the way he says you, you have a rape centre 
um, and you see the look in his eyes. Kind of, but I was I burst out laughing at that point and felt immediately terrible because no one around me did. Um, and also when Dick Cheney was named in the list of dictators, that I think was one of those moments where I got I judged the audience. Those people who knew who Dick Cheney was mm. kind of sat there in stony silence. And those people who did know who Dick Cheney was laughed there. And was it me? Did I see Michael Fassbender on the wall of Aladdin's Conquests? Because that I was really struggling to try and work out all the actors he'd had a Polaroid taken with after having I mean, sex with. I them. thought I thought that that bit at the end when it pans back, you see him put the picture yeah. of Megan Fox on the wall, and it pans back, and I thought they were going to play on that throughout more of the film that he's he's yeah. he's, he's this horrible dictator who's obviously a bit of a prat, but he's a yeah. you know a dictate dictator in every sense of the world, but but really he's just lonely. Yeah, really he just wants somebody to love. I thought they'd play on that for the whole film. And I know he got had a love interest in it, but him being lonely was pretty much forgotten. Yeah, that's true. But you no, know, when true. when it panned back and you see all these pictures of these just celebrities that he's paid to sleep with, and he's saying to Megan Fox, "Can we just cuddle?" And it, you just think, "Well, they're going to play on that. He, loneliness is going to be a theme." And no, it wasn't. Just forgotten. Yeah. That it came up one... once, didn't it? Yeah, a bit later on, I think, in outside yeah. the, uh, the the shop where she hugged him, and that was the. Mm. I think, but yeah, you're right. They they almost forgot about it completely, really. Yeah, mm. I think there was more. There was more of a reference, I think, to the fact that celebrities can be bought because obviously, I know that that is that Megan Fox thing is almost a direct uh, comparison to say Beyonce, who goes out to perform for the dictator of Uzbekistan, who is a massive bastard with terrible human rights issues and stuff like that. And she's happy to... And it, it was making a statement on the fact that celebrities are happy to accept uh, blood diamonds and... To- you know, the whole Naomi Campbell thing with mm. the blood diamond trial there and things. So that that was there as well. And then you also got... I did quite like, again, kind of despite myself, I didn't want to like it, but the, the Chinese ambassador who kept, keeps going on about like how basically he's got Harvey Keitel to wank him off and stuff like that. Yeah, um, yeah. I I didn't want to like those bits, but I kept laughing despite myself mm. during those bits. So that uh, oh, and one bit which was just fucking sorry, I, I I shouldn't swear that badly, but it threw me completely. It was almost like Cronenberg had taken over. Um, was when the he put his he had his mobile phone inside that woman giving birth, mm. and you saw the kind of the vulva point of view shot, and that <laughs> was just weird. Um, what strange. I really like is that that was actually quite unique. I've never seen anything quite like that. And the way that him and uh, Anna Faris's hands kind of held each other in there, and it, it was it was a really touching moment with two people with their hands inside. I, I don't know. I just didn't like. I didn't like that part. It was one of the parts of the films I thought was just really sort of cheap humor. I just thought this is just it doesn't really fit with the film, and it's just kind of you know it doesn't it didn't work for me. I didn't find it funny. I didn't find it. You know, I'll just yeah. It's inter- it's interesting. You should say that you found that as the the cheap humour in it. I thought the put downs when he was talking to um, I, I keep forgetting the name. Um, you know, Alison Berger's talking to to his yeah. girlfriend in the show, and he just kept putting a name. I thought they just were really cheap, cheap laughs. Yeah. No, they 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 were as well. Although calling her a chubby Justin Bieber was quite funny, but the rest of them <laughs> yeah, were just pretty, just like. Yeah. And I think that was another one of those examples where if he was saying it to a real person, 
yeah. you would go, <gasps> you'd get that shock. Fact. The fact that she was an actress and she knew what lines were being saying, I, I know exactly what I mean. They felt, a lot of that felt really flat to me, mm-hmm. simply because there was no real shock value there. Whereas, again, I hate having to go back to compare it, but just the moment in Borat where... Um, He's at that dinner party and he says to one woman, oh, he says, to her, your wife is very nice. And they, her, not so much kind of thing. And, you know, you go, that's a real person he's saying that to. Mm. And that is, that is hilarious. And when he's talking to the, uh, the feminists and things like that, if he's saying it to real people, it's funnier than if it is just a scripted insult to a character. A character who, to be honest, is quite two-dimensional already. You don't really care about her too much, to be honest. One... Um, one thing that annoyed me about the film was why I know the um, Nadal, who who was his chief weapon. Yeah. Why he, why he was so keen after being well, supposedly being executed, but going into exile and joining what seemed to be the resistance was so. I know he offered him his, his job back, but so keen to get back on his side, and in fact, come sort of best friends with him. That just, was one of the weak parts. I just thought. Yeah, I just thought. I just thought that was that was stupid. It didn't work, and it just annoyed me a bit. Sort of, why would this guy do that? I think, in the context of it being a comedy film and having a, a sort of narrative, it didn't really make sense. But it's no. another bit, I think, where where Sasha Baron Cohen's making a statement about something because hmm. the guy was working for an Apple store, wasn't he? Yeah, he was an Apple yeah. genius, and he hated it, and he, you know, he pretended he liked it. But I think that's another. Well, maybe it's not. You know, maybe it was just a really stupid thing to do. Um, sometimes, yeah. uh, what is it? Freud says sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> perhaps that was just a really poor poor bit of narrative of we, yeah, yeah. we should probably talk about the message that was subtly rammed down our throats throughout the whole film <laughs> um, about democracy in fact being like a dictatorship yeah and he makes some good points um, about you know about the press uh, and about well, it's the, speech, the richest it's a, 1% it's, yeah, it's having a, most of the wealth a, and stuff like that. It's the speech at the end where he's saying, you know, why don't you like dictatorships? In a dictatorship, you can do all this, that and the other. And he's just basically describing what's been happening in a democracy yeah. in, in America and the UK with, you know, Leveson and yeah. Murdoch and, and, you know, control over wealth and everything like that. I can't help thinking that when they were writing it, they were thinking, oh my God, this is going to... This is going to be one of the greatest movie speeches. You see it coming from a mile off. Um, I mean, they they even do it to a lesser extent when he starts running that health food shop like a dictatorship and it starts working fine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I I think that element of it, although I wanted that, I I was happy with that element being there. I wasn't necessarily so happy with the execution. I felt it was a little no. bit, uh, like I say, not very subtle. And it, also, it was just you know, a, bit a couple preachy. of weeks ago, we had the end speech of the great dictator. Mm. And, you know, this isn't, the, the speech at the end of this isn't fit to lick that speech's boots kind of thing. It's not at all clever. Um, and it, it, it didn't, although it had a message, it didn't feel, it didn't even almost feel like it believed in its own message. No, I think because it was turned on its head, wasn't it, by the um, the love interest side of it, mm. that's what cheapened it a little bit, I think. Yeah, um, yeah, that as well, yeah. It, just because he turned around his whole opinion because he liked this girl, then, it, it, I don't know, that didn't sit right with me. I thought you either make a point and you stick with it, or 
you don't you don't change your opinion because yeah. he likes to and, and, and it's when he, it's when he, it's when he changed from describing what a country does to describing democracy and relating it well, it it was similar to a film like a a, a rom com a romantic film that I can't even remember the name of now but it was a speech in a film like that and it sort of goes down those lines. I just think this is really not working. Yeah, it was... Oh, and luckily, uh, in my opinion, the film saved itself by illogically going back to Wadia and him basically being exactly the same person he was and not mm. having learned really any lessons whatsoever. So narratively, it's poor. But I think it picked up the film and ended on a bit of a, a comedic high, at least, yeah. by um, revisiting Wadia, and you know, and then we get the same running jokes of him, you know, cutthroat, telling them to get rid of his wife, you know, the woman who's now his wife, and the, the big argument over the uh, the missiles being pointy around again, yeah. and it kind of like it was almost like a, a reprise, like a musical reprise, where we went back and we got a best of the jokes that had worked in that film, and we had that to finish off, kind of thing. Um, so I, I was at least glad that we went there at the end of the film and it did end on a bit of a, a comedic high and I, I walked out with a smile on my face despite for a lot of this film just stony-faced at some of the, the attempted jokes. And the other thing that we mentioned that annoyed us, the underuse of the fantastic Ben Kingsley who in this in this film didn't really seem to do anything. Yeah. Even um, Even though he's the main antagonist. Yeah, he didn't seem yeah. to do anything. No, he didn't really have any funny lines. He d- he didn't have his own defined character. Um, and he no, he, he just was... seemed to move the plot along, but without really yeah, having he... to to do anything much. Yeah, and and for such and for, su- for, and for such a fantastic yeah. actor, why would you just even get him to, to rock up the work and not get him to, to be a fantastic actor? Yeah, I'm sure it was a the money. And B, I imagine it was very good fun to film. I imagine it was a great experience. I imagine he had fun. He got to be in a comedy. Mm, but I don't but, understand. Um, but I don't understand why you'd cast someone so good and not get him to to be as good as he can be. Yeah, I don't know why. I don't know why you wouldn't expand that role. I'm sure they could have cut some of the guff out with with um, Aladdin and and expanded on. Um, I forget the character's name, but Ben Kingsley's character's yeah. character's role, and sort of done more stuff with him, which could have been, you know, funnier in effect. Yeah, well, well, yeah, maybe, maybe it just didn't. Uh, again, we never know what ends up on the cutting floor, and I think Owen makes a good point. Maybe, maybe there was some extra stuff, and it just didn't work with Ben Kingsley. Maybe he didn't have the uh, the comedic chops for this role. I'm not saying yeah. he hasn't got the comedic chops, but maybe it just didn't work in this role, and maybe what was left of his performance is what was essential to move the plot along. And maybe a lot of other stuff did get cut because mm. it just didn't quite work. Um, who knows? But it, it felt like a missed opportunity, definitely. Well, I think we should wrap things up finally here. Um, everyone's already heard where they can find the podcast and the blog and Twitter. So hopefully you've enjoyed this uh, little extra section and we look forward to getting your feedback about it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Let's hopefully it's worked. I don't know, but mm. uh, it was quite nice to be able to have the freedom to talk about yeah. the film without necessarily spoiling yeah. it for everyone. I mean, five episodes in, we're still a work in progress, but um, it seems like by and large people are enjoying it. So let's hope they continue. Yeah. To. yeah. Well, that's all for this week then. 
So it's goodbye from me. Uh, goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 